Thank you, Stephen. And uh, it's uh, good to be uh, here. Well, I was going to say here again. Uh, I don't think I've ever been here before, but it's good to be back with uh, Windsor Baptist, even if the surroundings are a bit uh, unfamiliar. Um, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to that. I just want to reflect on uh, a few verses at the beginning of that chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. And beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's what we'll read. Uh, I'm going to reflect on these verses. I hope you don't mind um, if I move this microphone uh, just, just a little bit. Um, I don't want to sort of get halfway through my sermon and think there's somebody standing there just looking right into my face so, so closely. John Stephen Aquari from Tanzania was a world-class distance runner in the early 19, in the 1960s and the early 1970s. He was a competitor in the marathon in uh, the 1968 Olympic Games, which were held in Mexico City. Some of you knew that, but uh, had forgotten. Mexico City Olympic Games. Uh, so 42 kilometers, 26 miles, whatever number of extra yards. And as he prepared for the race, he prepared for the race in, in Tanzania. Uh, but the problem with that was that uh, Tanzania is not at altitude uh, where he was preparing, uh, as was the case in Mexico where he was going to be running the race. And so in the first half of the race, he began to experience cramp because he wasn't used to running at that altitude. And uh, almost halfway through the race, there were a number of athletes kind of jostled together and he fell very badly. He injured his knee quite badly. I think he actually dislocated his knee. Um, and his shoulder hit the pavement very hard. He picked himself up. His uh, leg was bleeding. His knee, as I say, was, was apparently dislocated. And according to one account of the incident, uh, a number of medical staff at the race were encouraging him just to, just to pack it in, just to forget about it. But he continued running. Well, it was really more of a mix of walking and hobbling and limping. He finished last among the 57 competitors who completed the race. I think there were 75 had started, 57 finished. He finished last. The winner of the, of the race had come in in 2 hours and 20 minutes and 26 seconds, which actually is quite a bit slower than would be the case nowadays. And he finished in 3 hours, 25 minutes, and 27 seconds, so over an hour after the gold medal winner had crossed the line. And by the time John Stephen Aquari had finished and was crossing the line, the sun had set, many of the spectators had gone, um, there was a medal ceremony that was taking uh, in, another, in another part of the, the complex. Uh, and as he came into the stadium, finishing his race, uh, people began to, to cheer as they realized what was happening. 
And a television crew that had been covering the medal ceremony was diverted quickly into the finishing of the, the marathon to, to get this courageous man hobbling across the line. He was interviewed about it. And he was asked why he had ignored the advice of the medical uh, people and had, instead of pulling out, had continued running. And here's what he said. Some of you have heard this before. He said, my country did not send me 10,000 miles just to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. They sent me to finish the race. Now, in some ways, that's the message of this couple of verses that we've just read this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. And in some ways, it's actually the message of the whole of the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, our understanding is that these were um, that the letter was written. It's kind of a it's a part letter, part sermon, uh, and it's written to a group of believers who are essentially people who've come to faith in the Lord Jesus from a Jewish background. And the writer, this anonymous writer, uh, is is a preacher with a shepherd's heart. And as he writes to these people, he realizes that the going has been tough for them. He realizes that for some of them, there's a temptation to turn back. This hasn't worked out the way they thought it would when they professed their faith in the Lord Jesus, when they began their race. And, you know, maybe it would be easier just to go back to what they'd known before. It'd be easier just to go back to just being Jews again and forget about Jesus because the promises hadn't been fulfilled in the way they thought. And so he writes to them, and he urges them not to turn back. You weren't here just to start the race. You're here to finish the race. And he, he encourages them by a mixture of some very serious warnings. Uh, he has got some uh, parts of Old Testament exposition where he takes Old Testament themes, um, all with the aim of, of showing them that Jesus, whom they have come to profess, is greater than anything that they've left behind. And so Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than all of the priests of the Old Testament. The sacrifice that Jesus offered is a greater sacrifice than all of the other sacrifices that had ever been offered uh, under the arrangements of the Old Covenant. Jesus had offered one sacrifice for sin, and then he'd sat down. He's at the right hand of God, and he lives to make intercession for his people. He tells them all of these things, and the goal of it all is to make sure that they keep running their race. And that's what we want to talk about just for these few moments this morning. Make sure that you keep running the race. There are three things that he says to these people, uh, three, three, at least I want to sum them up in, in terms of uh, three statements, things that sum up the message of these verses and that I think apply to us as we in turn try to follow and keep running the race that we've been called to run. Number one in the first part of verse one is that we're to be aware of the witnesses. Number two in the second part of verse one is that we're to get rid of the hindrances. And number three, which is what he talks about in verse two, is that we're to fix our eyes on the Savior. We're to be aware of the witnesses, we're to get rid of the hindrances, and we're to fix our eyes on the Savior. Those are three things that I want to talk about. Let me say a little bit about each of them. First of all, he says, be aware of the witnesses. You notice he talks about how we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And what he means by that, he's referring back to 
the whole list of names of people whom he's described in the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. Many of you are very familiar with it. It's a chapter which, which describes what faith is, and it illustrates what faith is, and how people down through Old Testament history have lived by faith, and they've accomplished all kinds of amazing things, or they've, they've suffered tremendous hardship, and they've been able to endure because of faith. And he says, these people now are witnesses as you, in your turn, run your race. I run a little bit when my uh, injuries, which, which uh, my injuries are becoming more and more frequent as I get older, but when injuries allow me, I, I, I run. I normally do the park run in Craigavon Lakes on a Saturday morning, and uh, I do the occasional 10 kilometers. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a medal winner you know, if I, if I get round and I'm still breathing and still standing, that's probably a victory. Uh, but I remember a couple of years ago doing a 10-kilometer race, two laps of Craigavon Lakes. And as I came inside of the finishing line, I heard someone calling my name. And it was a friend of mine who had finished just a little bit ahead of me, and he was standing uh, near the finishing line. He saw me coming, and he was cheering for me to encourage me to, to make my way to the end of the race. And perhaps you can think of, of these people in, in that way. They're, they're witnesses. They've run their race, and now they are waiting for us as we continue to run our race and as we make our progress towards the finishing line. These people like Abraham and Abel and Noah and Moses and Rahab and Samson and so on, they've run their race, and as we run ours, they form a great cloud of witnesses. Now, we need to ask ourselves, in what sense are these people witnesses? And one image that comes to your mind, you know, and maybe you get this grand image that comes to your mind, that there's a stadium, and it, you know, it's like the Olympic marathon, and there's a stadium, and you're arriving in the stadium, you've done, you know, most of the, you've covered most of the mileage, you've arrived into the stadium, and as you look around, in the, in the stands, you know, there they are, sitting in their seats, in fact, they get up out of their seats, and, you know, Abraham is there, and he's cheering, because he's watching you. And uh, Rahab is cheering you, and Noah is cheering you, and Moses is cheering you. They're witnesses, and they're watching you as you run your race. Now, it's possible that that's what the writer means, but I don't actually think that that's what he means. Because the other idea behind the word, of wit, the, the word witness is not just, it's not just about somebody who watches what's going on, but a witness is a person who has a story to tell about something that they have experienced. I grew up in a church background where, you know, fairly often we would have what was called testimony meetings on Sunday nights. Some of you will have had the same, the same kind of thing. Uh, and you kind of look forward to these, especially if it was going to be somebody with a fairly colorful story, you know, a story of how they'd come to faith. The best were probably the former paramilitaries. Certainly anybody who had any kind of life of crime, uh, that was, those were the most interesting stories. And they would get going, you know, about 10 past seven, and, you know, they, they would talk for a while, and, and all these amazing things that had happened to them before they'd come to faith in Christ, and uh, they, they'd eventually, you know, come to a point where they, they'd describe their conversion experience. Now, I must confess, and some of you have been through this kind of thing, probably the most, you know, the most interesting ones were the ones that, that, that stayed unconverted until about five to eight, you know, <laughs> and all these amazing stories and the crimes that they had committed and the trouble that they'd got into, and, you know, your, your heart probably sank a little bit at five to eight because you knew it was almost finished. 
And you know, sometimes, and this is a little bit of a caricature, but sometimes folks can give a testimony, and the drama and the excitement is, is what happens before they come to faith in Christ. And then they come to faith in Christ, and they say, well, of course, since then I have failed him many times, but he's never failed me once. Thank you very much. Let's pray. And that's about the height of it. Now, the testimony of the witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11 is not like that at all. Their lives were an adventure of faith. And they, I, I believe this is the sense in which, verse, in which chapter 12 is talking about this, they are witnesses in the sense that they say to us, listen, you are now running a race of faith. Let us tell you what it's like. Let us tell you about our story. Let us tell you about our adventure of faith. And let us tell you that we have proved the faithfulness of God all the way through our journey. And so you look at someone like Abraham and the power of his story of faith. It's fascinating that, that much of the witness of Abraham in chapter 11 has to do with trusting God for the future. There are three incidents in Abraham's life that, that have particularly to do with the future. The first one is when God calls him to leave where he's living and to go to a place that God will show him. He doesn't tell him where it's going to be. He just says, you're leaving here and you're going somewhere. Abraham's faith was quite unclear. He didn't know where he was going to go, but he trusted God. Then a bit later on, and you, you know, many of you again know the details of this, God asks him to trust him for a son, that God will give him a son. Abram's an old man. His wife is an old woman. And at this point, the future is not just unclear, but the future is highly unlikely at their stage of life to have a son. And then as the story develops, the son is eventually born, and God comes again and says to Abram, now I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, in terms of the future there, the future is gone because Isaac was the future. Isaac was the promise. The promise was in Isaac, and if there's no Isaac, there's no prospect of any promise. And all of those times, Abraham is called on to trust God when the future is unclear, when the future is unlikely, and when, frankly, there doesn't seem to be any kind of future. Interesting, isn't it, that, that those tests of his faith seem to ramp up the older he gets. You know, some of you who are younger, you may be thinking, you know, just if I was a bit older, I'm sure this Christian life thing would, would get easier. And you look around at some of the older people, maybe some of the older people who are here this morning are part of the church family, and you think, I'm sure they don't have to face the temptations that I have to face. It's probably a lot easier for them. You know, they've, they've gone through the tough seasons. Maybe you should talk to them about that. Maybe you would find that it's not like that at all. And maybe their witness, their testimony would be, just like Abraham, that actually the, the tests at the beginning, they're, they're, they're demanding, but do you know, the, the next one gets harder, and the next one gets harder again. But they probably would also say to you, like Abraham, well, do you know, I've been able to trust God, and I've discovered the faithfulness of God through all of these things. These people's stories speak to us. They, they grip us. They're so real and so relevant to us. Take Moses, and he's got to trust God uh, when he's faced with choices that nobody else understands. And so Moses grows up as a prince in Egypt. He's the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And the, the time comes when he's got a choice to make. 
is he going to pursue that life as a son of Pharaoh's daughter with all of the, the wonderful uh, riches that will come with that, the, the comfort that will come with that, the pleasure that will come with that, the opportunities that will come with that? Is he going to stay with that, or is he going to throw his future in with the Hebrews, the slaves? And almost incredibly, and if you'd been observing him, you would not have understood it. He says, do you know what? I'm going to identify myself with the Hebrew slaves. It didn't make any sense. And Hebrews says, you know, by faith he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy these pleasures of sin. If Abraham speaks to us about faith as it relates to the future, here's Moses. It's still got to do with the future, but it's got to do with this inexplicable choice. And it may be for, for some of you, that's, that's what life is, is going to be like, especially some of you who are younger. And you're maybe going to be called upon to make choices that make, and your choice and your decision will make no sense whatsoever to people who know you and people who observe you because you're living a life that is based on a different reality. You can see something because of faith that other people cannot see. Take Daniel and his friends, and their story is, is about what it means to, to be faithful to God, to stay loyal to God when you're under terrible pressure. You know, you need to pray to this idol or else. You'd better not pray at all or else. And what do we do? And I think this is tremendously relevant in the 21st century. What do we do when the powers that be say to us, this is what you may do, and this is what you may not do, and it conflicts with our primary loyalty to God. Will we stay faithful to God, or will we cave into the pressure? Daniel speaks to that. And these stories, these experiences that these people have, all the way through Hebrews chapter 11, these are stories which connect with us in all kinds of different ways. They're absolutely up to date. And some of you maybe are facing an uncertain future. Some of you are faced with a choice. And, and the way that you're headed with the choice, people don't understand it. Some of you are faced with pressure. You're faced with pressure to cave in. And these witnesses would say to us, listen, we ran our race. We trusted God. God was with us. God enabled us. God strengthened us. God used us. And God demonstrated His own faithfulness to us as we ran our race. They're the witnesses. And we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses as we run our race. And I need to say one other thing about this just before we leave them. You, you need to notice, and it comes towards the end of chapter 11, that not all of the stories had a positive ending. You know, it's, it's great to, to see about Daniel, isn't it? You know, and there's Daniel, and he decides that, well, the king's decree may say one thing, but I'm going to, I'm going to do another. I'm going to keep on praying. And he's thrown to the den of lions. And as we used to sing, some of us, when we were children growing up in Sunday school, God just shut the lion's mouth, you know, and you, except you didn't say shut because you just, you know, that. But God shut the lion's mouth so they couldn't harm him. And you think, wow, isn't that amazing? Wouldn't it be great to see God working in my life like that? these amazing exploits. And Hebrews is very realistic and says, you know, there were, there were some people, uh, as, the, as the writer comes towards the end, 
There were some people in verse 33, through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, they were made mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead back by resurrection. You think, wow, this is amazing. Can we also live that kind of life of faith with all of these accomplishments and all of these amazing things going on as we trust God and we see God working? Some of us would love to see that and the transformation that God could bring to our lives and could bring to the lives of other people and could bring to the life of our nation. We'd love to see that kind of thing. And yet, he goes on and he says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I don't know, guys, if you're interpreting for one another or something like that, but you're, you're being a bit of a distraction, if you don't mind me saying. Some people conquered through faith. For other people, it was the power of their faith that allowed them to stay faithful to God, even though they were being conquered. The witnesses be aware of the witnesses. Second thing that he talks about is getting rid of the hindrances. I've seen people running. This is a kind of park run thing. I don't know if anybody else does this. I think, Stephen, you're a park runner. But, you know, I've seen people running, and, and they're pushing a buggy with a child in it, you know? That's just part of the Saturday morning park run thing, you know? You, you push the buggy, buggy, buggy around. Uh, which is all very well. I often try to figure out, is that an advantage or a disadvantage? You know, does it, the fact that there are wheels, if the wheels are well oiled, does that, does that encourage the, the pusher of the buggy to go faster, especially downhill? Or is it difficult when they're going uphill? And I sometimes think, well, they can't actually wave their arms about the way we're meant to and gain momentum from that. Uh, but, of course, it gets even worse when, you know, the, the little guy who's in the buggy, you know, he tosses his blanket out or fluffy toy gets discarded along the way. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're planning to, to win a race, you're not going to push a buggy with a child in it. You know, nor are you going to do, like you sometimes see, if you see photographs of people running the London Marathon, you know, you're unlikely to win the, the London Marathon if you're dressed up as an apple. I've seen guy, pictures of guys dressed as apples. I've seen someone dressed up as a Lucozade bottle. I've seen two people running in a camel outfit. Now, you're not going to break too many speed records. You're not going to win too many medals if you run like that. If you're a serious runner, you will not want anything to hold you back. And that's the, the way that Hebrews begins to talk then. He says, as you think about the Christian life, in terms of a race, that this is not about the novelty runners who are dressed up as Lucozade bottles. This is not about the people who are, you know, who are in for the fancy dress prize. He said, this is the kind of race that you need to get rid of every kind of hindrance. Let us lay aside every weight and, and the sin which clings so closely. 
the practicalities mean that that's, that's got to do with getting rid of anything that makes it harder for you to run the race. Now, I imagine if you run a marathon, London Marathon, Belfast Marathon, wherever, there's probably nothing in the rules that says that you cannot run with a 20-kilogram backpack on your back or, you know, pulling a, you know, a 30-kilogram suitcase full of books or something along behind you. Probably as long as you don't interfere with other runners, you can pull whatever you want behind you. You can carry whatever you want. But you will never see many winners who run like that. Actually, if you observe the guys who win these kind of things, they're, they're, there's hardly a pick of fat on them. They're slender, I suppose is what you would call them. There's, never, there's not even an ounce of fat, never mind a rucksack or a Lucasade bottle. And what Hebrews is saying then is that if something is going to slow you down or if it's going to make it harder for you to run, you need to get rid of it. I uh, read this, this about uh, Olympic athletes. Just somebody had written this a couple of years ago. Uh, Olympic athletes are physical specimens like nothing else. They're extremely fit and muscular, and that is a result of a physical regimen that includes countless hours of working out, practice, and an extremely strict diet. Olympic athletes eat, breathe, and sleep their sport all the time. In fact, most athletes leave home at an early age to dedicate their life to training. A few years ago, Rebecca Adlington, the swimmer, wrote, I train four hours a day six days a week doing 10 pool sessions in total. On top of that, I have physiotherapy, massage, and strength training. There are no luxuries in training terms when you reach the top. I'm up at 5 a.m., training from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., and again in the afternoon. In the week, I get home at 7.20 p.m., grab something to eat, watch a bit of TV, and then crash. It's all sleeping, training, driving, and occasionally finding time to eat. The dedication and discipline of someone who wants to compete uh, at that level in an event. Hebrews says, get rid of every weight, anything that's going to hold you back. My father-in-law finished his race on Friday morning. Just a few days short of his night, he would have been 92 tomorrow, uh, but my father-in-law was a man of, of many skills. I don't know, one of, one of my memories of, of early years of married life and going to my father-in-law's for, for Christmas lunch uh, was he had this, this, what I thought was quite a remarkable skill and ability. He was able to bone the Christmas turkey, you know? He'd take the bones out of the thing and then roll it all up. And I no idea how he did that, but he did. Uh, his, his skills included that. He also, I mean, some of you are old enough to remember the kind of treasure hunt thing that maybe a lot of us used to do where you had these cryptic clues and you, groups of you got in cars and drove all around Northern Ireland looking for you know, answers to these clues. He, he was able to craft those kinds of things. And when it came to the Bible, he was a bit like those Olympic athletes. He was a man of dedication and discipline. He had no theolog theological degrees. He didn't have a degree of any kind, but he was an avid student of the Bible. And that was helped because of his discipline and his commitment. Pauline says that as she was growing up, no matter what time you got up in the morning in their family home, her father would already 
be sitting somewhere reading his Bible. She'd see him in the evenings as well with his Bible and a pen and a piece of paper studying away. Discipline, focus, and dedication. Take that into the, back into the athletic sphere, the discipline and the dedication of an athlete means that they're going to live differently from other people. They're going to eat differently. Their friends are going to say, hey, why don't we just go to McDonald's and get a burger and a lot of, and a lot of chips or something like that? And they're going to say, well, you, you go ahead. That's fine, but I'm afraid that's not for me. I'm training. Friends are going to say, you know, there's, a, there's an 11.30 uh, marathon of, uh, at night of all the Star Wars films. Would you like to come? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm up at 5 tomorrow because I have to be, you know, out on the running track by 8 in the morning. Uh, so I'll, I'll, not be, I'll not be sitting up all night, you know, watching, watching movies. There are a lot of things that an athlete is going to say, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. But for me, that's going to get in the way of my performance. Their eating habits are going to be different. Their sleeping habits are going to be different. Their social habits are going to be different. Because they're focused on a goal. Now, Paul talks very similarly in 1 Corinthians 9 about the, 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 this challenge of, uh, of discipline. And can I just ask us, how much discipline and dedication do, do we bring in terms of running our race of faith? You know, do some of us sort of treat it like a fun run? And if it gets too tough, well, we'll just drop out. How much extraneous stuff do we carry around with us that really does very little to help us as we run? I think many of us have trained ourselves to think that if there's nothing actually specifically sinful about something, well, then it's okay. Sort of minimalistic thinking. If it's not forbidden, then I'll do it. But I wonder how many of us could be running a lot more effectively than we currently are. Ask yourself, you know, think, let's reflect on this for a moment. Is there something that's holding you back? Something that may be fine for other people, but it just means that, that it, you're not progressing as much spiritually, you're not being as effective spiritually as you might be. And it's holding you back, and, and it's increasing the possibility of you losing your way somewhere. Could be your use of social media. Could be your TV habits. It could be your ambition to get to the top of your career tree get rich. Could be an unhelpful relationship that you're in, that you know is not doing you any good spiritually, but you don't want to let go of it. Could be a memory from the past, something you haven't dealt with. Could be a, a disappointment. Could be a refusal to forgive someone who has wronged you. All kinds of things. And as long as you don't deal with them before God, they're going to hold you back. He says, get rid of every weight. Of course, he goes on to say, get rid of the sin that clings so, so closely. You expect them to do that. 
You see, in the race, trying to hold on to sin is like running while you know, dressed up as a Lucas 8 bottle or dressed in long flowing robes that will hinder you and that will trip you. Be aware of the witnesses, get rid of the hindrances, and finally fix your eye on the Savior. Now, the witnesses will be helpful to us. They encourage us by their stories. But look at verse 2. He says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Abraham could be a great source of inspiration to us. Uh, Daniel's story might inspire you. Might be a, there might be an awful lot, and there is an awful lot to learn from that, from, from the story of Daniel. Gideon might inspire you, timid little guy who becomes a mighty warrior. But he doesn't say, run with your eyes fixed on Abraham, or run with your eyes fixed on Daniel, or run with your eyes fixed on Gideon or any of the others. He says, as you run, fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus also ran a race. He lived a life of faith. He is the author and perfecter of faith. And he says, you know, as you look at Jesus, remember who he is. He is the pioneer and the perfect example of faith. He says, as you look to Jesus, remember what he did. I find one of the things about, about running a race the odd time is, you know, there are people who are, who are watching. They're standing along the sidelines. Now, they're different from my friend that I told you about a little while ago who was standing at the finishing line. He ran his race, and I think because he ran his race and ran it well, he was well qualified to encourage me. I always find, and any of you who run, you can tell me whether you, you think the same. I always find when I'm running, you know, and here I am struggling along to finish 10 kilometers. You know, and there's someone standing at the side with a jolly smile on their face, and they're saying, come on, come on, you can do it. And you, th and you think, well, the cynic in me thinks, you know, it's all very well for you to stand there on the sidelines and encourage us to run. Don't see you out here running. And encouragement like that can just maybe be a little bit shallow or a little bit superficial, well meant, but maybe not the same as the encouragement that comes from somebody who's actually run the race. And so he says, as you fix your eyes on Jesus, you're fixing your eyes on someone who ran a much tougher race than you will ever have to run. He endured the shame. That's what it said. He endured the cross, rather, despising the shame. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. Jesus' race involved needing to endure the dreadful death of crucifixion, without which we have no hope, without which we have no forgiveness, without which we have no life. Death by crucifixion was reserved for dreadful criminals. It was a shameful death. And that's the race that he ran, and he did it, says Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him. He knew there was something beyond it. And I think as these Hebrews would have read that, they would have thought, you know, we're having to, to run a tough race here. And we need to be reminded that there is joy set before us as we endure the race. We look to Jesus because of who he is, because of what he did, and we look to Jesus because of where he is. He says he's now seated at the right hand of God. That's a very familiar theme if you take time to read through the book of Hebrews. And it was so important again to first century Christians to know that the Jesus they followed, who had been crucified in shame on a cross, was now seated 
in the most powerful place of the universe. Now, we may, we may find in the Western world that we, we need to come back to a very firm realization of this. We've lived for, for decades with a kind of, you know, cultural privilege of being in Christianized countries. What happens if that goes? What happens if we become a, a minority that's scorned? What happens if we no longer get the opportunity to influence the culture in ways we've been able to do? Does that mean that, that, that our future is any less certain? Well, it may just mean that, that we will increasingly fix our eyes on Jesus and say, you know what? We, we may be a, a minority that's scorned. We may be a minority of people that others do not understand. But Jesus, whom we follow, we believe that not only did he die, not only was he raised, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in a place of majesty and a place of authority, and we run with our eyes fixed on Him. We run with an awareness of the witnesses. We run getting rid of the hindrances. We run with our eyes on Jesus. There are three letters that no runner wants to see attached to their name at the end of a race. D-N-F. Stands for did not finish. Sometimes you can get DNS. And if you see that in a list of, of people in a race, DNS means that although they signed up for the race, they didn't actually start it, did not start. If you see DNF beside their name, instead of, you know, two hours, 20 minutes, or whatever it might be, if you see DNF, it means that the runner made a start, but something happened. And they never made it to the end. We need to resolve by the grace of God that we do not get a DNF. You know, if the Christian life was a quick sprint, well, all you'd need would be, you know, go along to a camp or a special event or stick on one of those worship albums or something like that. Get yourself hyped up. There'll be enough in that to get you across the line. But it's not like that. Your enthusiasm will only take you so far. I think sometimes for Christians, the summertime is a time of great enthusiasm because there's New Horizon, there's Scripture Union camps, there's you know, all sorts of Exodus teams and all kinds of things. And often, young or old, we come back from those kind of things. We're enthused. And if only it was a sprint, that summer enthusiasm would carry us across the line. Sometimes it just about gets us to the 3rd of September. And we need something more. We need to resolve by the grace of God that we will take note of those witnesses and listen to the stories of their faith, faith that triumphed and faith that endured. And we will, we will, be, we will be radical about the seriousness with which we need to approach the running, we will be prepared to get rid of things that are hindering us and holding us back. We'll not play with them. We'll not tolerate them. We will, we will be prepared to say, look, if an Olympic athlete is prepared to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night because they want to win a medal, well, surely if I've been called by God to follow Jesus, I'd be prepared to make some sacrifices. Laying aside the weight and fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because 
as John Stephen Aquari knew, we're not just sent to start the race. We're sent to finish it, to run it through to the end. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we want to receive its, both its challenge and its encouragement. Father, as we sit here this morning, we, we do look at not only Hebrews 11, but Lord, people that we have known who have run a race, who've demonstrated the reality of faith in you, who've demonstrated the reality of your faithfulness. And now, Lord, it is our turn. And we thank you, Lord, that, that you are able to take hold of our lives and to, to carry on the good work that you've begun in us. But Lord, help us to receive these challenges. Lord, not just to take your word lightly, not just to treat this as a fun run or as a quick sprint, but Father, that you would give us a resolve, not just even to stumble across the finishing line, but Lord, that as long as we have strength and as long as we have breath, we will pursue the goal for which you have called us. Father, you know every heart in here. You know every situation. You know exactly what we need to receive from you today. Uh, and we pray that you would minister your grace to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.